good morning again. I want to, of course, uh, welcome in all of our family and guests uh, joining us online as well on the live stream. Um, we are really um, so blessed to be able to have a live stream that has been able to reach people all around the world. And uh, so wherever you're turning in today, we're, uh, we're glad that you're here. Um, will you open your Bibles with me, please, to John chapter 8 this morning. John chapter 8. If you are new with us over the last six months or so, we've been going verse by verse through this uh, amazing, incredible gospel, the gospel of John. And so uh, just to uh, recap uh, quickly where we left off two weeks ago in verse 12 of this chapter, you'll re recall we saw Jesus uh, once again in this gospel declare his deity. Um, and he proclaimed this to a massive crowd that had gathered at the temple uh, for the Feast of Tabernacles said, I am um, the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And of course, the, the I am, we've gone through that. Um, that is the very name of God. I am, I am. Um, a few verses later there in verse 24, Jesus then warns the religious leaders and, and those who followed them that you will die in your sins unless you believe that I am he. These were clear, searing words from our Lord that unless you believe Jesus is the great I am that I am, you will die in your sins. And where I'm going, Jesus said, you cannot come. Now, as a result of Jesus' proclamation, this is where we left off in verse 30. Uh, we're told that as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Many believed in him. And it would be a uh, cause for great celebration if that's where uh, our text ended. However, um, as we come to the rest of the story in verses 31 through 47, the authentic um, or authenticity of their belief is called into question as Jesus speaks directly to this group who has claimed to believe in him. Jesus' words to this group have, I believe, a twofold purpose for those who claim to believe. He was not only seeking to help this group understand how true saving faith reveals itself through their lives, but he also exposes the deceptiveness of false belief that does not save. So as we study our passage this morning, we recognize the urgency and importance of such a text and it's been my prayer all week long that God's word would continue to do the same for us today and mainly that for those of us who do truly believe in Jesus, um, that we would be spurred on and continue in our belief and that those of you who do not believe in Jesus or perhaps say even have been deceived into a false belief, will come to truly know and will follow the risen Christ. Again, I remind you of the ultimate purpose John had in writing this gospel. It was given to us very clearly in chapter 20, verse 31, where he said, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John 
unashamedly wrote this book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that no matter where you find yourself in your life, whether you are a fully devoted follower of Christ or you are completely lost, still dead in your sins in the deepest despair, wherever you are, you will read and hear these books and you will recognize that Jesus is the only solution to our sin problem. So you would believe in him. The truth of the Bible is that we are all born sinners in thought, word, and deed. We are born spiritually dead, destined for the just judgment of a holy God for all of eternity. But John makes it unmistakably clear that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. It doesn't matter how deep your sin runs or how many years you've been living in um, treasonous rejection of him. The good news of Jesus is that his grace is greater than all of our sin. That whoever believes in him has eternal life. Whoever believes in him is taken out of the kingdom of darkness and brought in, bought with the price of Christ into the amazing light and life of Jesus. Um, well, if you've never believed in Jesus by um, turning from your sin in repentance and trusting him, I pray certainly that God pries open that old darkened heart and puts new life in you today. Belief in Jesus is certainly where the Christian life begins, which is why it's the focus of John's gospel. But he doesn't stop there in the midst of the continual call to believe in Jesus John also consistently differentiates between true and false belief. More so certainly than any other gospel. And John is so careful to record this part of Jesus' teaching because he knows that there are many who will initially respond positively to this call to believe. Only to later reveal that they were not of God and were not true disciples of Christ, After calling us to believe, John wants us to recognize that there's a very real danger of false belief and to pursue saving belief in Christ. John introduces false belief back in chapter 2 of his gospel. You remember this is where the people were beginning to flock to Jesus early on in his ministry because of all the miraculous signs and healings that Jesus was doing in and around Jerusalem at the temple. It says in verse 23 of chapter 2 that many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Well, well what's that mean? They believed in his name. Well, in part, um, they believed in the signs that Jesus did. Yep, they believed that Jesus was a miracle worker. They witnessed it. They believed it. They saw it. In fact, remember in the very next chapter, in chapter 3 of John's Gospel, when Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, said to Jesus, Rabbi, oh, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. They believed Jesus was a miracle worker. But those who believed back in chapter 2 Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Huh? Well, why? Because he knew all men. He knew what was in man. Jesus calls that kind of faith into question. And 
not only at the end of chapter 2, but you'll remember towards the end of John chapter 4 when Jesus uh, leaves Samaria. Uh, he's heading up north for his um, grand return, his homecoming into Galilee. Uh, and you'll recall the, the momentum we were on as we were reading through these uh, scriptures after having just read about that great faith of the Samaritans in that little village of Sychar. After spending two days with Jesus, they said, we believe for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. And so Jesus is making his way northward back home. And the Bible says uh, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that Jesus had done in Jerusalem. Apparently, this group of Galileans had also gone down to Jerusalem for the feast. They also had witnessed Jesus' miraculous signs. So here comes Jesus. He's coming home. And the American, here comes our miracle-working boy. Here comes Jesus. And what does it say? What does Jesus say of their faith? Verse 48, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Jesus, again, makes it clear. Whatever kind of faith that these people have was not a saving faith. And then we saw this again in John 6, the massive crowd seeking after Jesus. He miraculously feeds the crowd of 5,000, which is really like 15,000, counting men, women, and children. And he exposed their faith as counterfeit, as people were only interested in jo uh, Jesus for what it is that he could do for them. Oh, they wanted his, uh, the free food. Uh, they wanted in on the healings, but they weren't interested in Jesus himself. And when the words Jesus spoke uh, became too hard to hear, it says in 66, that many of his disciples turned back. They turned back and no longer walked with him. So now here in John chapter 8, you see the theme. The theme has been building and Jesus gives us a single condition that demonstrates the truthfulness of our faith before again pointing out key differences between true and false disciples. Today we're going to focus in on that single demonstration in the first part of this passage and then Lord willing next week we're going to continue through the same passage and look at those differences between true and false belief. So let's finally get into the text here in John chapter 8 together. We're going to begin in verse 31. And so you can get the full context. And, and as I said, we'll cover this in full. It's really a two-part message. Um, I'm going to read this entire section right down to verse 47 for us. We're going to be primarily focusing on 31. Verse 31 says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. 
I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I have heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. When people respond positively to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we should encourage even the smallest expression of their belief. We should celebrate that expression of belief. Yet at the same time, we must recognize that Jesus gives us here in John a, a conditional clause regarding the validity of that profession of belief in him. Verse 30 told us that many believed in him. And but sadly, we just read down in verse 45, at least some of those very same people, if not most, who appeared to have believed and then were said to have not believed. And then, as we will see, Lord willing, in a few weeks at the end of this chapter, the same group, some who had professed belief, they will pick up stones and try to kill Jesus. Jesus, who knows the heart of man, knows that their belief is suspect. So let's focus in then on verse 30, 31. Jesus is speaking to those who had seemingly believed, and he makes this statement there in the middle of the verse. If. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Now him stating the difference between true disciples tells us that there are false disciples as well. And the single condition that demonstrates the truthfulness of the claim to believe is given to us right here. If you abide in my word. Brothers and sisters. The authenticity of our belief is not proved by some emotional experience. A, a prayer that we pray, a church that we attend, the good works that we do, or even some intellectual sort of knowledge about the things of Christ. 
Throughout John's gospel, we've seen that Jesus isn't interested in gathering large crowds to himself who are focused on what they can get out of him or that will only follow him one day a week. No, he is seeking those who will deny themselves and will devote their entire lives to following Christ as true disciples as revealed by whether or not they abide in his word. That word there, to abide there, it's a key term in the Gospel of John. And it's the same root word that's used throughout the New Testament, often in regard to spiritual fortitude. It can mean to remain or to continue in. And it carries this idea of interconnected dependence. Remember that as we go along this morning. And... We see this clearly in John chapter 15 where Jesus uses the term abide at length almost a dozen times in as many verses. So flip with me just for a moment to John chapter 15. Just a few pages over there and look at what Jesus says there beginning in verse 4. Jesus proclaims, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. For this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples." Just as the branch receives its life from the vine and bears fruit to show that it's alive and it's connected to the vine, so too a true disciple of Christ will find life in his word and bears fruit that reveals the life-giving word is coursing through our veins and through our lives. Scripture knows nothing of a true believer who does not bear fruit. A fruitless life is evidence of a dead faith and does not save. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus made a very similar statement to the one here in John 15. He said in verse 19, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So let's turn back to John 8 now. And uh, we see here in verse 31 where Jesus said, If... You abide in my word. You are, present tense, you are my disciples. Which means we don't become disciples by abiding in his word. No, we prove, as Jesus said in John 15, we prove that we are his disciples by continuing, continuing in his word, continuing in the faith. In fact, one thing that separates true disciples from false deceptive belief is our one main point this morning that we're going to break apart into three parts. 
Part number one is that true disciples persevere in the faith. True disciples persevere in the faith. When we persevere, it means that we continue on that path of faith, even in the midst of persistent persecution or seemingly overwhelming discouragement. True disciples will persevere in the faith. This teaching is sometimes referred to as the perseverance of the saints and is taught throughout our scriptures. For example, Jesus taught this doctrine in the parable of the sower. Teens, listen up. We were in Matthew 15 this morning where he mentioned four different types of soil upon which the same seed fell. The first three bears no fruit, revealing that they were never true disciples. It was only the fourth soil who hears the word and accepts the word that bears fruit. Consistent with the word we just read in John chapter 15. The major emphasis of James' entire letter is certainly revealing true faith as evidence and perseverance, which James personally experienced. The Lord himself promised that believers will face various kinds of trials, whether it's uh, societal pressures, uh, persecution, whether it be financial, uh, sickness, even physical death. Whatever various kinds of trials it may be, true faith is refined and revealed in our response to trials and ultimately in our perseverance. James chapter 1 verse 12 says this, Blessed is the man and women who remain steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. That phrase there, remains steadfast, is really one Greek word there, uh, hupamano. Um, it's the same root word as abide back in John's gospel. Only those who remain steadfast, those who abide are true disciples that will receive the crown of life. In the book of Acts, as the gospel spreads throughout Jerusalem and then to the surrounding regions, a wave of new churches are birthed and pop up. One of those churches that started was the church in Antioch. You might remember that it was Antioch where believers were first called Christians, those who followed Christ. And uh, when the church in Jerusalem heard about the new uh, group of believers, they sent one of their own, Barnabas to go check on the church and to instruct the believers there. In Acts chapter 11, verse 23, it says, When he, Barnabas, came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Steadfast purpose. When Barnabas first arrived, he recognized that the conversion of the Gentiles in Antioch uh, was solely the work of God's grace. Uh, he saw the grace of God at work in their salvation, but then he exhorted them to remain faithful, thereby proving that their salvation was in fact a genuine conversion. Just a few chapters later in Acts chapter 14, Paul, who was stoned in Lystra for preaching the gospel, not the only time that he was stoned and alive, Miraculous here, he survived and he continued on with Barnabas and on their missionary journey, establishing churches and teaching believers in those churches. And in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, 
we read that they were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. As with the book of James, that word continue, continue in the faith is the same phrase as remain faithful back there in Acts chapter 11. They all use that same root, root word back in John 8, memo, memo, to abide. Um, so those are just a few of the many examples that show us a clear pattern throughout the New Testament that true disciples persevere in the faith. True disciples persevere in the faith. And all through uh, his gospel, the apostle John is calling anyone and everyone to believe in Jesus Christ, while at the same time he is exposing this vast canon of difference between true and false belief. Here in John 8.31, Jesus gives us the only sure test that proves that you are his disciples, and that is lasting perseverance, abiding, abiding. But how do we seek to persevere in the faith? If perseverance is really marked by remaining faithful and continuing in the faith, then what does it look like practically in the lives of those who have truly believed? And that's exactly what Jesus continues to show us in verse 31. He doesn't just stop with, if you abide. He tells us how, if you abide in my word. Part of our single main point this morning is true disciples persevere in faith by continuing in the word. Continuing in the word. When Jesus says, uh, my word, there in verse 31, it can also mean his teaching. So to continue in his teaching, to continue in my word. When the spirit of God takes up residence in you, many things begin to change. Most importantly, you have been moved from death to life. Death to life. You've been granted a, a new birth. You adopt a biblical worldview. You, you look at the world through a completely different lens. And there should be an ever-increasing hunger and longing for the word of God. And a desire to submit in every area of your life to the commands that he has given us in his word. You cry out, Master, I want to become a slave to Christ. So, is your pursuit of faithful endurance of abiding important enough in your life that you abide that causes you to um, restructure your priorities and devote yourself to a serious study of God's word? A growing thirst for the word of God is one of the clearest signs of the spirit of God in your life. As David proclaimed in Psalm 19, these truths are more desirable than gold. They're sweeter than honey for the soul. Those who delight in the word of God. Psalms 1 tells us he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Brothers and sisters, how does your life reveal a new birth? How does your life reveal that the spirit of God has taken up residence inside of you? Have you experienced that inexpressible and glorious joy that is found only in the truth of Jesus Christ and the salvation that he provides? Do you have a thirst for the word of God? Or do you consistently find yourself too busy to read or study God's word? We must 
drink deeply of the fountain of God's word so we are not, as Paul said in Romans 12, conformed to this world. Rather, we are being transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Ultimately, that means that we should be looking and longing to be more and more like Christ. And as we grow in our obedience to his commands, because continuing in his word or to continue in his teaching means primarily that we seek to obey his word. True belief is uh, irrevocably linked to obedience, and it's a key part of the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. It's one of the key ways that we are to be making disciples is to teach others to obey everything that Jesus had commanded. Earlier in John 3, Jesus actually used belief and obey interchangeably when he says in verse 36 of chapter 3, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you do not strive to live in obedience to the Son, then it may be evidence that you may not have truly believed in the Son because you are not abiding in his word. Jesus said later in John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Notice, Jesus didn't say, if you obey my commandments, then I'll love you. Uh -uh. He said, if you love me, if you are truly my disciples, then you will keep joyfully my commandments. So that as fathers of Christ, our joyous response to the redemption of God in our lives should be to live in obedience to him. It becomes our joy too. It becomes our joy. Bottom line, you will do what you love the most. If you love self, then you will serve self. If you love God, then you'll serve and obey God. Now, just to be clear, I am not talking about going to church, uh, praying before meals, sacrificially giving to your church, trying to do the right thing. Certainly those are good and perhaps even God-honoring things to do. But those are also the types of things that the Pharisees did. And yet Jesus said that they did not know God. They didn't listen, nor they did not understand his words. 1 Samuel 15, 22 tells us Samuel prophet rebuked Saul. And he said, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than your works of sacrifice. In other words, you could go through all the religious rituals that you want to do. But without obedience to his commands, it means nothing. And the primary way that we obey his commands is to flee from sin as we pursue the holiness of God. This does not mean that a true disciple doesn't stumble or falter in their faith. Not what I'm saying. This does not mean that true disciples won't go through periods of stronger or weaker faith. This does not mean that true disciples won't wage war against their own sinful desires and at times fall into those temptations. What it does mean is that a true disciple ultimately returns to the word as the source of light and of life and to confess their sins to a God who is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all 
unrighteousness. A true disciple, no matter how far we may stray, will come to their senses and return to Christ by obeying his commandments. Although John calls us to believe in his gospel and he clearly and consistently differentiates between true and false belief, and he even gives us this condition in which we can test our faith to be genuine, it's not until his first epistle, however, that he addresses the painful reality of those who profess to follow Jesus, only later to abandon the faith that they once confessed. He said this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. We read near the end of John 8 that the reason why the Pharisees did not hear the words of God that were coming right from the very mouth of God standing in front of them is because they were not of God. So here in John's first epistle, he is addressing a group. They returned to their sinful behavior that left them. They, 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 they left, they made it plain to all that they were false disciples. He said, they went out from us, but they were not of us. These were not truly saved individuals, for even though they gave an appearance for a time, no true believer can suddenly lose their salvation. Once you are born again into the living hope of Jesus Christ, you cannot be unborn. So those who profess belief in Christ, but continue to revile him by their habitual continued sin patterns, reveal that they are not true disciples because they did not abide in my word. The writer to the Hebrews speaks of those who profess to know Christ, but to go on, continue living in disobedience to him. In Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of the fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and had profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Those who persevere in the faith prove that they are truly his disciples and they do so by turning away and confessing from their sin and feasting on the teaching of Christ all the while pursuing his holiness. There's another important conditional clause that's given to us by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 2 that we cannot overlook when we're talking about um, true and false belief. Paul said that we are being saved by the gospel if, if, another if, another condition, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, 
unless you believed in vain. Unless it was all in vain. Those who believed in vain are the ones who did not persevere in the faith and thus proved that they had false belief and they were not saved. What a horrible place to be. What a horrible position to be in, which is why the New Testament has so much to say about the perseverance of the faith. The call to remain faithful, to remain steadfast. And for those of us who are true believers in Christ, we may hear these words and we confess and know how difficult persevering in the faith can be at times. I'm sure all of us have at one time or another been um, overwhelmed to some degree and we are even now thinking of times where we have fallen way short, where we've been tempted into despair and we are reminded again and again by our enemy of our repeated failures and you might be thinking, how in the world am I supposed to persevere on my own? I'm barely making it through today. Brothers and sisters, let me remind you I was barely able to put this lesson together. I was so convicted. So let me share something with you that will lighten that burden for you today, brothers and sisters in Christ. You can't do it. You can't do it. You can't do it on your own. There you go. There you go. You can't do it. Just as there is nothing you can do to save yourself, there's nothing you can do to keep yourself in the faith. And this is where that word abide comes in and is so key for us. Remember what I said earlier, abide carries that uh, idea of the interconnected uh, dependence. We continue to abide in the word and the powerful word of God keeps us in the faith. So the final part of our first main statement this morning is that true disciples persevere in the faith by continuing in the word because God preserves them because God preserves them this again is a truth that John has been laying out for us throughout his gospel perhaps no clearer than back in chapter 6 beginning in verse 37 you'll remember this was right after Jesus proclaimed that he was the bread of life back in verse 35 he then makes this very powerful declaration in verse 37 Jesus says all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Look at the progression of salvational truths there, and who does the persevering in the faith. Jesus says that all God the Father draws, comes, to the son all that the father draws comes to the son and the son keeps all that the father gives to the son before the foundations of the world ephesians 1 says and whoever comes to the son jesus will never cast out 
And to emphasize the importance of that statement, Jesus repeats it again down in verse 39 in just a slightly different way by saying that he will lose nothing of all that the Father gives him. Instead, he will raise us up on the last day and we will live together with him for all eternity. Brothers and sisters, what a comfort. Our perseverance does not depend on us. Our strength, our staying power in the faith does not depend on us. Once God has saved us, the Son will never let you go. The Lord who has saved his people will keep his people to the very end. Oh, we labor, we strive to keep the faith as if our life depends on it. But all the while, we know that it does not depend on us. It depends on God. James Montgomery Boyce wrote this in one of the books I'm reading. God is faithful in persevering his people. The saints persevere only because God persevered, pr preserved with them. The followers of Jesus Christ will be faithful to him because he is faithful to them. God said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Jesus told his disciples, surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Those truths are so significant because it is God through his son that keeps us to the end and that will raise us up on the very last day. As true disciples of Jesus, we prove our belief through our persevering in the faith by continuing on in his word to long for an ever-increasing way for that great day of Jesus Christ to be revealed when our faith becomes sight and we will live with him forever. We show even in that longing and in that hunger for the bread of life that our belief is genuine. And as we read today in the scriptures, so many great persevering in the faith, one of the most profound condensed lists of those who persevered in the faith is um, referred to the Hall of Faith, Hebrews chapter 11, and a list that is meant to uh, move us towards abiding endurance in our faith, which is why the writer to the Hebrews follows up that list by saying this at the beginning of chapter 12. So right when you get done with the hall of faith and all of those great names and all of those acts of faith, 12 reads right after, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith now not only do we have this great list in Hebrews 11 and countless other examples throughout um, the scriptures but we have all the Christians throughout the history of the church who have certainly served as models of persevering in the faith. And one of the earliest examples is that of Polycarp. It's an incredible story of faith I shared um, quite a few years ago with all of you. Polycarp was the uh, aged bishop. I think he was 86. Is Tom here? He's reading a great book on it. I believe he was 86. Uh, he was the aged bishop at, at Smyrna and uh, a martyr of the early church. I think it was around 156 A.D. or so. 
It was reported that Polycarp was taken by the Roman authorities and uh, threatened to, to take stand in the arena. This is the Roman arena, of course. To be torn apart by wild animals if he would not curse Christ, if he would not denounce his faith in Christ. And Polycarp, who, by the way, had heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ from the very lips of John the Apostle himself, would not avoid death by renouncing his faith in Christ. Polycarp refused, explaining, For 86 years have I been Christ's slave, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? And with those words, officials surrounded him with wood and engulfed him with fire. Polycarp remained faithful until the very end. True disciples persevered in the faith but continuing in the word because God, God preserves them. If God has opened up your heart this morning through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, or if you just need the prayers of the congregation, please come forward as we stand and sing this morning for God so loved the world.